Uh, last week, if you were here, you'll remember that I argued that the ontological argument and the cosmological argument, at least in the versions that I looked at, uh, there was a cautionary note about other versions. Personally, I think the other versions fail for uh, sometimes similar reasons to the ones I looked at. But at least the versions I looked at, I suggested, don't give us any reason to believe uh, that there's a God. And this week, I'm going to look at uh, the design argument, which, uh, to give away the bottom line, I think has got more going for it. Okay, so the design argument. Let me start by paraphrasing the most famous presentation of, of this argument, and if you want to read it in its original version, it's at the very beginning of William Paley's book, uh, Natural Theology. Suppose that you and I happen to be uh, wandering along across a heath one day, and I pitched my foot against a stone. You asked me how I suppose that this stone happened to be there, and I could reply that it's probably been there since that part of the world was first formed. And, unless you know quite a bit about geology, you might find it very hard to show that I'm wrong. We walk on. Next, I pitch my foot against a watch. In Paley's day, this would of course be the pocket watch, but we can adapt his story slightly. So let me say that I pitch my foot against this watch here. Have a look at it from your distance. It's hard to appreciate it, but it's a, it says the word precision on its face, so it must be very complex and sophisticated. You ask me the same question. How do I suppose that this watch happened to be on the heath? Well, it would hardly occur to me to answer for the watch as I had done for the stone. If I did, then however little you knew about horology, you'd see that I was instantly mistaken. Yet why should not the same lack of explanation be equally appropriate for stone and for watch? Well, the answer is that this watch, in contrast to the stone, displays evident marks of design. It's overtly a complicated mechanism constructed for some purpose. An intelligent being, a, a Martian, even someone who'd never seen a watch before, would conclude, just by looking at it, that it was obviously designed by another intelligent mind with some end in view. Now consider the universe as a whole. Is it more like a homogeneous, undifferentiated stone? Or is it more like a variable and complicated watch? The planets rotate around their axes so that night follows day. They rotate around the sun so the seasons follow one another. The solar system itself is part of a galaxy, the Milky Way, which itself rotates, and so on. Wheels within wheels. Is this not rather like, suspiciously like, a watch? All are precisely adjusted relative to one another, adjusted then, one might think, for some purpose. And as surely as if there's a watch, there's a watchmaker. So if there's a purpose, there's a purposer. And shouldn't we therefore conclude that the universe was designed by some supernatural agent of immense power? We should. That, at any rate, is the design argument in its classic version. The most significant critic of the design argument was the 18th century philosopher David Hume. Some of his criticisms occur in his inquiry concerning human understanding, but they're developed most fully in his work, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, and I recommend those to you. In these works, Hume makes a number of points, and I've divided them up rather artificially for the purposes of making my discussion of them easier, and here are four of the points Hume makes. Firstly, Hume pointed out that the design argument is an argument from analogy, so the argument is only going to be as good as the analogy is plausibly close. And Hume argued that the analogy between the universe and human artefacts is not close. The universe isn't that much like a watch. It's more like, say, a vegetable, something which one can't assume bears the marks of design on its face in the same evident way that a watch does. Secondly, Hume argued that even if the analogy between the universe and human artefacts had been close... Other hypotheses could equally well have explained the order of the universe. There might have been a committee of demigods uh, creating this world, or perhaps this world might have been the first attempt of an infant deity, he says, that as yet doesn't possess the full suite of theistic powers. 
or there might have been something rather like a large spider, he speculates, that could have spun it like a web, or, well, you can go on inventing these hypotheses for yourself. His point is that whilst God might explain the order of the world, there are an infinite number of other hypotheses that would explain it, so it could hardly be said to be forced to posit a God. Thirdly, even if the existence of suffering in the world could be made compatible with the existence of evil, uh, sorry, even if the existence of, again, even if the existence of suffering in, in the world could be made compatible with the existence of God, uh, i.e. if the problem of evil, which I've yet to discuss, does have a solution, even if that's true, it's still unreasonable to infer a perfect cause from what is manifestly an imperfect effect. You should only ever posit in a cause such properties as are strictly necessary to produce the effect uh, you deserve. So the positing of a being who's omnipotent and perfectly good would thus be explanatory overkill, if you like. It would be rather as if, on the basis of my performance in these lectures to date, you were to fill out your lecture feedback questionnaire by saying that I was the best philosopher since Socrates. I don't want to discourage you from doing that if that's the way you feel moved to do it, but the hypothesis that I am the best philosopher since Socrates, even if it is compatible with my delivering these lectures, could hardly be said to follow from my delivering these lectures. Fourthly, the theistic hypothesis is useless as a hypothesis once generated, for we cannot argue back from it uh, to otherwise unknown features of the universe, for example, and in particular, the likelihood of answers to petitionary prayers, currents and miracles, likelihood and nature of life after death. So what are we to make of these points? For the moment, let me look at the second, third and fourth points, as I think these can be got out of the way relatively easily, and I hope you can see they're on the handout if you're trying to remember which the second, third and fourth were. <clears throat> on my list, Hume's second point is that there are an infinite number of other hypotheses that could equally well explain the order in the world. Why is this not a good point? The answer comes in one word, simplicity. There are indeed explanations of the order of the universe other than the theistic one, but the availability of an infinite number of other explanations for some evidence doesn't make us think it's not reasonable to believe the simplest explanation of that evidence. The hypothesis that there is a God is, I've suggested, essentially relatively simple, simpler certainly than the other hypotheses that Hume considers. It's true then that we could hardly be said to be forced to posit a God, and this is indeed sufficient, I think, to show that the design argument cannot be a deductively sound argument. But then the design argument needn't be interpreted as pretending to be a deductively sound argument. It can be interpreted as purporting to be an inductive argument. And if so interpreted, it's an open question whether it might inductively support, i.e. Uh, add something uh, to the uh, case for the existence of God, or even in itself be inductively sound, i.e. show that it was more likely than not that there was a God. The same consideration of simplicity, I suggest, tells against Hume's third point, as I've numbered it, that posit the theistic God is explanatory overkill. Contrary to Hume, it's not always rational to posit in a cause only such properties as are strictly sufficient to explain the particular effect uh, we deserve, strictly necessary to explain the particular effect we deserve. Do you posit that I, your lecturer, have the power to say just exactly the words I'm actually saying at just the time where I'm actually uh, saying them, but I don't have the power to deviate from my script by even a syllable? Of course not. You attribute to me all the powers that it would be usual to attribute to a human being, which is what you uh, take me uh, to be. Thank you. Even though these usual powers, of course, are not necessary to explain the effects you actually observe by saying just these particular words at just this particular speed and with just this particular intonation. Why do you posit properties that are not necessary to explain the particular effects you observe? Well, because it's simplest to do so. And the theistic hypothesis, I've argued, is relatively simple. So unless you have particular reason to posit that the explanation of the order of the universe was not omnipotent and perfectly good, and that reason might indeed be provided 
by the problem of evil, it would not be unreasonable to prefer the theistic hypotheses to these other hypotheses as an explanation just to reverse. So that's Hume's second and third points out of the way uh, to my satisfaction, of course, as with all things, you may bring your own thoughts up in, uh, in uh, questions afterwards. Hume's fourth point was that the theistic hypothesis once reached was useless in arguing back to otherwise unknown features of the world, e.g. the likelihood of answers to petitionary prayer, possibility of life after death, and so on. This seems, even if it's true, and I don't think it is, you might remember the first lecture where I argued you could infer from the theistic hypothesis that there would be an afterlife, and indeed certain features of it. But this seems, even if it's true, and I don't think it is, uh, irrelevant. It can't be a good criticism of an argument that its conclusion doesn't allow one to infer various other interesting things. Consider, uh, by way of illustration, this argument. Andy was found alone in a locked room with the body of Bob a moment after Bob's death. Andy had been heard to shout, I'm going to kill you, Bob, moments before a single shot had rung out. Bob has been shot dead. Andy had a smoking gun in his hand when he was found, which ballistics later matched as the murder weapon. Andy's first words on being discovered were, I just killed Bob. Therefore, Andy killed Bob. Now, that's a pretty good argument. And it's no criticism of this argument that the hypothesis that Andy killed Bob cannot be used to argue back to otherwise unknown features of Andy and Bob. What would you think as a jury member if, after the prosecution had convinced you of all those premises in that argument, Andy's defence barrister pointed out that the hypothesis that Andy killed Bob didn't allow you to infer anything interesting about the, uh, as he would put it, vexing issue of whether Andy and Bob had ever been clubbing together in Brighton? You'd think, well, that may be true, but it's certainly irrelevant. The argument's strong nonetheless. So Hume's second, third and fourth criticisms, as I've given them, can, I suggest, be swept aside. Here um, I come to what I call Hume's fifth point. Hume's fifth point is an instance of a sort of point that we came upon last week and called the how do you get your argument uh, to stop at God point. If it's order that needs explanation, as the proponent of a design argument seems to think that it is, then whilst the order that is the fundamental laws of nature could indeed be explained in terms of God's having the idea to create a universe that displayed that order, well, there'd still be some order left unexplained at the end of that story, the order which was the idea in the mind of God of such creation. On the principle with its order that needs explanation, which is the principle the proponent of the argument seems to rely on to take him or her from the universe to God, well, this idea in the mind of God, which is arguably at least as complex, at least as ordered as that to which it gives rise, well, that must have an explanation. It could get one, of course, from a super-god who ordered the mind of God, and the, but then there'd need to be a super-super-god and order the mind, or, or the mind, order the mind of the super-god who order the mind of God, and so on. And so it's obvious that the principle that order needs explanation would generate an infinite regress with no justification for stopping a god rather than earlier. So we have to accept that there's going to be, in any story we tell, some unexplained order. That having been admitted... Those who say that mental order, the mental order manifested by the divine mind, requires no explanation and no better off, it might seem, intellectually speaking, than those who say that the physical order manifested by the fundamental laws of nature requires no explanation. Indeed, they might seem to be worse off. If you're ultimately going to have to accept that some instance of order has no explanation, why go all the way to God before you locate that instance? Wouldn't it be better, simpler, to stop with the fundamental laws? Now, I think this is a um, cogent and powerful point against the design argument and mutatis, uh, mutandis against a variety of other arguments. I pressed it against the cosmological argument uh, last week, you may recall. However, as we saw then, it's not decisive. The proponent of the design argument can claim that it's not order as such which requires explanation, but physical order. 
The fundamental laws of nature are an instance of physical order. The order in the mind of God is an instance of mental order, and the former needs an explanation, whereas the latter doesn't. The proponent of the design argument will have to defend the claim that mental order is less in need of explanation than physical order, and the most promising way of doing that is to maintain that minds, in contrast to physical stuff, can be self-ordering. This is not obviously going to cut any ice with someone who doesn't think that minds are anything to contrast with physical stuff, so the defender of a design argument will, I think, have to defend the further claim that minds are made of a different sort of stuff from physical stuff. And here he or she can be seen to be moving outside the field of philosophy of religion into the field of philosophy of mind along the path that was signposted at a similar juncture last week. It looks as if you need to be at least favourably disposed towards substance dualism on independent grounds before you could reasonably hope to meet the force of Hume's fifth point against the design argument. Maybe, or at least not uh, <laughs> disposed against it. Okay, let me leave that there. And this leaves Hume's first point, as I numbered it. Hume contended that the universe does not, in fact, bear marks of design in the manifest way that a watch does. Is this plausible? Imagine yourself for a moment as David Hume, then. Cast your mind into that role. You're a witty, uh, sceptical Scotsman, 18th century, somewhat outrageous by the standards of your day. Frankie Boyle, perhaps. Billy Connolly, a bit, bit less rough around the edges than those. You've just finished playing a game of billiards, something which has taken your mind off philosophical puzzles for a moment or two, when a man approaches you and he has the look of a religious enthusiast about him. You ready yourself for philosophical battle, but before you can act, he lands the first punch by saying something along these lines. I suppose that you, Hume, would say that it was just lucky that I had a couple of eyes, that it was just good fortune that these eyes have lenses, lenses which enable light to be focused on my retinas, retinas which by some fluke are at the back of each eye and by some coincidence are connected up to optic nerves, nerves which in turn are luckily hooked up to the bits of the brain uh, that are by some random chance adjusted to process the sort of information they can provide. Well, come on, all this talk of luck and good fortune and coincidence is madness. It's obvious that the sort of complicated structure that I am resembles a machine constructed by an intelligence much more than it does anything thrown together by chance. If you don't accept it of the universe as a whole, you've got to accept it of our bodies, animal life in general. Our bodies are obviously a lot more like watches than they are like stones, and the same goes for plants, flowers. If they're a lot more like watches, well, it's the height of irrationality to resist the conclusion that there must be something a lot like a watchmaker behind their creation. Nowadays, in the 21st century, if you come forward in time, it's very hard to appreciate how devastating a blow this would have appeared to one of Hume's contemporaries had they been watching the fight that we're imagining. When Hume's contemporaries put their hands on their hearts, figuratively or perhaps especially literally speaking, they did indeed feel compelled to admit that the human body and animal life and vegetable life in general resembled a machine much more than it did anything else. And once they'd done that, surely, they thought, the step to a machine-making mind was irresistible. So you, as David Hume, would stagger back, I think, under this blow. But it's time to give you a little bit of help in our imaginary battle by time-travelling in for you a discovery that came along a bit later in the history of ideas, the theory of evolution by natural selection. The theory of evolution by natural selection seems to show how something that resembles a machine much more than it does anything else could nevertheless result without the need for a machine-making mind behind it. And I assume that the rough outlines of this theory are known to you, so I'll try not to repeat them here. A uh, very readable, if uh, somewhat journalistic, uh, account is given by Richard Dawkins in his book The Selfish Gene, which I commend to you. 
So, had you as Hume heard of the theory of evolution, you could have punched back with the following. Bits of the universe, animals most noticeably, do indeed resemble human artefacts, which in our experience have designers. This is true. Nevertheless, we now have a naturalistic explanation as to how this appearance of design could be generated in the absence of a designer, evolution by natural selection. We think of this in the biological context, but the same sorts of considerations apply more widely, mutatis mutandis, under the influence of gravity, a swirling chaotic mass will eventually condense into planets and the like. So we can explain instances of natural order in terms of these natural laws. There's no need to posit a designer in virtue of them. And I think this blow will land squarely on your opponent's chin at this stage. He reels back. Is he beaten? Not yet. To explain the order that is, for example, the human visual system, in naturalistic terms, one has to make reference to another instance of order, the laws of evolution, or more generally, the laws of nature. Hume's first point, as I now sort of polished it up, admits that the stuff that the laws of nature operate on is indeed ordered, but claims that that's because the laws of natural selection have operated on it, moving it from a relatively disorderly state into a relatively orderly one. The order that's expressed by these laws of natural selection is, we assume, capable of being explained in terms of biological laws, and the order expressed by biological laws might in turn be explained in terms of uh, the order expressed by chemical laws. Perhaps the order in chemical laws can be explained in terms of the uh, other physical laws, the laws of physics. But this process must stop somewhere, the fundamental laws of nature. And the fundamental laws of nature will be expressions of order, order which, by the nature of the case, they're being fundamental, cannot be explained naturalistically. That in terms of which everything else is to be explained naturalistically cannot itself be explained naturalistically. So even after you, as Hume, have punched the proponent of the design argument with your evolution roundhouse, there's still, at the most fundamental level, order in the physical world that has no natural explanation. You've left, if you like, your flag exposed, and the proponent of the design argument has an opening. Let me introduce a couple of ideas now on the way to determining whether the proponent of a design argument can, at this stage, in the end, land a knockout blow. The first one is uh, fine-tuning. Scientists have discovered that various features of the universe, let's call them constants and boundary conditions and of the laws of nature which dictated how the universe evolved within those boundary conditions, needed to have values lying within a very small range if the universe was to be conducive to life in the broad sense that it is. For example, scientific consensus is that the universe began in a big bang 14 billion, 15 billion uh, years ago, 14 billion probably closer, and scientists have discovered that the rate of expansion of the universe uh, at, from the Big Bang had to fall within a very small range if it was not either to expand so fast that stars, planets and hence life could never form or expand so slowly that everything would collapse back in on itself under its own gravitational attraction so the same consequences would follow. The exact figures for the range within what, uh, what determines this and certain other constants must lie if there's to be the possibility of life are not always agreed but it is always agreed that they are very narrow indeed and certainly one in a billion wouldn't overstate the case. Of course, uh, scientists can't change the values of constants in the laws of nature in their laboratories. That's, after all, why they're called constants. But they can perform computer simulations for differing values. And when they do so, they find that if per impossible um, one were to alter any of these constants by even a fraction of a fraction of a percent, the universe would not be, in the broad sense that it is, conducive to life, would not be capable of sustaining life for any plausible understanding of life and the life involves some sort of degree of structure and you don't get any of it with even the slightest of changes in these things. 
So fact is then that had the laws of nature and the initial uh, uh, boundary conditions been even ever slightly so different from the way that they are, life could never have formed. In this sense then we might say the universe could be described as fine-tuned uh, for life. Of course that might uh, linguistically already seem to presuppose that there's a fine-tune. If you don't like that, just hive off that linguistic implication and think that at least initially you can commit yourself to the fact of fine-tuning without uh, implying that there's a fine-tune. Excuse me. Let me introduce uh, the other idea. It's a principle of reasoning, and in its more worked-out form, it's called Bayes' theorem. And I'm going to give it in a slightly rough and ready way. Bayes' theorem states roughly that if you find some fact, let's call it A, and A would be more likely if another fact, let's call it B, obtained, that you should conclude that you have some reason from A to think that B does obtain, and that reason is proportional to how improbable A would be in the first place. Uh, let me give an example of this uh, principle at work. Suppose that you found, as you woke up this morning, that a half-eaten kebab and a traffic cone lay on the pillow beside you. You would have been surprised. Waking up with these things beside you would have been something that in itself was unlikely to have happened. Most mornings you don't awake with such items, I'm supposing. Suppose that you'd scanned your memory for a recollection of what you'd done the previous night and you'd found none. Instead, you found that you had a splitting headache. That in itself would also have been unlikely. Usually, you can remember what you did the previous evening. And usually, when you wake in the morning, you don't have a splitting headache. So, supposing that all of this would have happened this morning would be supposing that a somewhat composite, antecedently very unlikely event had occurred. An unlikely event calls for an explanation. What would it have been rational for you to believe about what you got up to the previous evening on the basis of this evidence? Well, let's apply Bayes' theorem to this problem. You should consider those hypotheses that would have rendered it more likely that you would have woken up with a half-eaten kebab, a traffic cone, without any recollection of how they got there and with a splitting headache. One explanation uh, must claim priority on our intellects. Extreme drunkenness leading to gastronomic recklessness and stereotypically student thievery. If you'd been extremely drunk the previous evening, you might have thought it a good idea to get a kebab, steal a traffic cone, passed out with the two of them in your bed. If you'd been drunk enough to do all that, then you wouldn't expect to remember what you got up to the previous evening when you awoke, and you'd expect to have a splitting headache. So according to Bayes' theorem, assuming that it's not actually in itself that unlikely that you've got very drunk the previous evening, if you remember, oh yeah, I have form for getting recklessly drunk in the evenings, it's not in itself very unlikely that you got drunk the previous evening, it would be rational for you to infer from the fact that you'd woken up with these items, no recollection of how they got there, and a splitting headache, that you had been drunk the previous evening. This example really only works uh, for a certain type of undergraduate, which I uh, imagine hardly any of you are. But you can imagine the sort of person for whom it would work. I suggest then that fine-tuning is a fact, and Bayes' theorem is a principle of rationality. So I'm not going to argue with either of them. Now let me lay out the fine-tuning uh, version of the design argument, which is the version which utilises these concepts most overtly. The fine-tuning uh, that scientists have discovered shows that it's extremely unlikely in itself that the universe would be ordered so as to be conducive to life in the way that it is. It would be considerably more likely to be so ordered if the process by which it came about was under the control of God. Therefore, from the fine-tuning of our Bayes' theorem, we have reason to believe that there is a God. I want to consider three possible objections to this argument, and I'm not, you'll remember, going to actually seek to call into question the fact that the universe is fine-tuned and that Bayes' theorem is a principle of rationality. But three other objections one might uh, raise to it. Firstly, someone might say this. Of course the universe is conducive to life, but that shouldn't be a surprise, 
we wouldn't be here to think about it if it wasn't. That which is a necessary condition of us being here to think about something can't itself be something that's worth thinking about. Well, <clears throat> this point is relevant to another argument for the existence of God, one we've already looked at. If your sympathies lie with a person who says that things which are a necessary condition of our being here, thinking about them, don't require explanation, well, then you're not going to have any sympathy at all with the cosmological argument, which asks for an explanation of why there's a universe at all. Now, I'm not myself that sympathetic to this point for reasons which the following example that I owe to Richard Swinburne brings out. Imagine this now. A terrorist ties you up in a room with a machine. The machine is linked up to a bomb which will, if it explodes, kill you. You see the terrorist put ten ordinary packs of cards into the top of this machine. He tells you that the machine will thoroughly shuffle these cards and then select ten at random, drop them into a little tray in its front. Only if the ten it dishes out are all aces of hearts will the bomb not go off. He leaves you, the machine whirs away, first card comes out, it's an ace of hearts. The second, another ace of hearts. The third, an ace of hearts and so on. In fact, all ten are aces of hearts, so the machine goes silent and the worrying red light on the bomb turns to green and you've survived. Would not this require some explanation? The chances of ten aces of hearts being dished out in a row if the machine worked as the terrorist said it did are fantastically small. And the fact that something fantastically improbable has happened requires explanation. Explanation of our Bayes' theorem in terms of something that will make it less unlikely to have happened. For example, the machine selecting cards on a basis that actually gives it a preference for aces of hearts. If a terrorist came in and brushed off your survival as not needing explanation in the sense of not being a fact which gave you reason to suspect that the machine was not as he described it, you'd give him very short shrift, even shorter shrift than you'd be inclined to give him quite terrorist anyway. Of course you couldn't observe any other outcome if what the terrorist told you was correct, but there could have been another outcome, and another outcome was, if what the terrorist told you was correct, much more likely. So that from that you've survived, you've got reason to believe that what the terrorist told you was incorrect. So I don't think the first objection to the fine-tuning argument works. The fine-tuning is, if it is indeed improbable, a fact that needs explanation. On to the second objection then. Well, I think that a universe fine-tuned for life would be more likely on the hypothesis that there was a God than it would be on the hypothesis that there was not. One problem for the proponent of the argument seems to be that it's not going to be possible to establish that a fine-tuned for life universe is in itself unlikely by the same sorts of methods that lead us to establish, for example, that waking up with a half-eaten kebab and a traffic cone is in itself unlikely. It's only as a result of the relative frequency in your experience of waking up without a half-eaten kebab and a traffic cone that it's obvious to you that it's in itself improbable that you would wake up with such things. Given that your experiences over a large number of mornings have had a certain non-half-eaten kebab, non-traffic cone character, you are indeed justified in thinking it unlikely that there'd be a half-eaten kebab and a traffic cone in bed with you when you awake, and thus when you nevertheless find them there, you are indeed justified in demanding an explanation of them in terms of some hypothesis that would make their presence more likely. How unlikely in itself is it that there be a universe fine-tuned for life? Well, it's not obvious that this question really makes sense. But someone might argue that one thing that is obvious is that even if it does make sense, you can't have had any experiences that are going to be relevant to justifying the answer to it that's needed if the argument is to get off the ground, namely very, or at least relatively. Of necessity, you cannot have had any experiences of a non-fine-tuned for life universe. Now, I'm not myself convinced uh, by this point either, though I think it's fair to say that uh, many philosophers are. If you uh, want to see why I find it plausible, 
as I hope you do, then engage in the following thought experiment uh, with me. Suppose that scientists had discovered that the universe was composed of a certain type of fundamental particle, each one of which had inscribed on it, in time 0.000, tiny size font, this particle created by the god of classical theism, copyright. What would we say to someone who, on being made aware of this startling discovery, said this? My notion of probability is such as to mean that I cannot allow that even this evidence raises the probability of theism, for after all I have only ever had experience of this one universe. This discovery does nothing to allow me to stand back, look at multiple universes, observe the frequency with which this property is conjoined with God, the frequency with which it's conjoined with no God. Well, we surely say that they just show themselves to have an overly restrictive notion of probability. That sort of evidence, had it been forthcoming, really would have raised the probability of there being a God beyond reasonable doubt. And anyone whose notion of probability is such as to mean that they say it wouldn't is someone whose notion of probability we have ipso facto good reason to reject as exhaustive of legitimate notions of probability. Okay, so suppose with me that these two objections can be overcome. As I am fond of saying, uh, nothing I say is uh, uncontroversial. You should feel free to disagree with everything other than the claim that you should feel free to disagree with everything. Uh, but suppose with me for the moment that these two objections can be overcome. The argument is still only going to work as long as we can be reasonable in believing that the God hypothesis increases to at least some extent the probability of there being a fine-tuned for life universe. Presumably the proponent of the argument will reply to this line of criticism, line of questioning, by using analogies with cases with which we've had more direct experience, cases which illustrate that we do value the creation of life as an end in itself. This having been established, he or she could then argue that if there were a God, he would be more likely to favour the creation of a universe that was conducive to life than, say, one that was not, and thus establish that the hypothesis that there is a God would increase the probability that a fine-tuned universe such as ours exists, the fine-tuned universe thus via Bayes' theorem, leading us to favour the hypothesis that there is a God. So the crucial question is, are such analogies forthcoming? And my view is that they are, but uh, they're not conclusive. So consider the following uh, situation. Suppose you're an astronaut. One day you're working on a distant planet rather like the Earth as it was several million years ago with what biologists would call primordial soups swilling around under stormy skies. Conditions are ripe for the emergence of life. But as yet no life has formed, no indigenous life. I mean, you're, you're there. You have a certain aerial which you need to set up somewhere to send a signal back to your orbiting spaceship before you can leave this planet forever, never to return. Two locations are equally suitable for sending this signal. You could set up your aerial at location A, where it would be more likely to conduct some electricity down into a pool of primordial soup, and thus more likely to assist this planet in developing life. That's one option. Alternatively, you could set it up at location B, on a rocky outcrop with no soup around. Each location is equally close to your current position. Aerial would work well in either location. You'd be perfectly safe whichever location you choose, and so on. The only difference will be that if you put it up in location A, then, as a byproduct of your sending your signal, you're more likely to create, with the help of these pre-existing conditions, more likely to create life on this planet than if you put it up at location B. Do you have more reason, even if only slightly more reason, to cite your aerial at location A than you do at location B? A positive answer is going to be needed to questions such as this if we're going to have a hope of being justified in thinking that if there's a God, he'd have a reason for creating a fine-tuned universe and thus be able to create a good argument from the fine-tuning in this universe using Bayes' theorem for the existence of God. Well, you might have a different intuition about this uh, from me, and my own intuitions on just this example have changed over the past 
few years, but for what it's worth, I report that personally, I now think the answer is yes, you do have reason, perhaps only slightly greater reason, but some reason, to put your area at A rather than you do uh, the reason you have to put it at B. I'm not going to uh, try and argue into uh, thinking about this my way. The only way I think I could argue would be to produce more analogies and see if others work for you, even if that one doesn't. But I'm curious to see whether or not uh, my intuition is shared by many of you. So let me just do a straw poll. Who thinks that all other things being equal, one does have reason, even if only slightly re- greater reason, to create life rather than not to create our life? So you ask them all, you say, I put it a day. Who thinks yes, put it a day. Okay, that's probably at least half. Let's see about this. Who thinks it's neutral? You don't have reason to put it A, you don't have reason to put it at B. It's just out of indifference. Okay. And who thinks that actually one has reason not to create life, that in fact one has reason to put it at B rather than A? Okay. One person. Okay, good. Well, you'd have to be in the first group before you could hope to meet the... Ch- I mean, you don't have to think this is a good example to illustrate it, but you have to think that there would be some examples to illustrate the point I wanted this example to illustrate. You'd have to be in the first group before you could hope to meet the challenge to the design argument by establishing that creating life is in itself something that God would have good reason to do. If you're in the last group, and anyone was, you could actually run a design argument against the existence of God. Fine-tuned for life, the universe would be just the sort of universe you'd expect if there were God, him not to create uh, because of the disvalue, the lack of reason, indeed the reason not to create life. Okay. Turning then to the final point that could be made against the fine-tuning version of the design argument. This is the point that there are alternative hypotheses which could explain the fine-tuning. Now, this point I said earlier could be brushed aside simply by reference to simplicity considerations. And I do, in fact, think that. But there's an alternative hypothesis to theism that has come to the fore in recent times and that's worthy of further reflection. My own view is, that, which is controversial, is that it is in fact simpler than theism. A lot of people say it's not simpler than theism. My own view is it's simpler, but it's not actually explanatory adequate and thus theism comes through as the simplest explanatory adequate hypothesis in the end. Anyway, an alternative hypothesis is a particular multiverse view. There are other multiverse views, but this is the particular one I'm going to focus on what I call the maximal multiverse view, sometimes called the unrestricted multiverse view. I'm sure we're all familiar with the claim that if you give a group of monkeys typing away at typewriters enough time, then they'll eventually type the works of Shakespeare. So if we came into a room one day and found that there were a group of monkeys sitting at typewriters, and amongst a vast pile of papers on the floor, we found a copy of the works of Shakespeare, we shouldn't demand an explanation above and beyond the monkey one, unless we had reason to believe that the monkeys hadn't been there very long or the pile of uh, papers was relatively small and works of Shakespeare were suspiciously close to a surface or some such. So analogously then, the fact that unless the laws of nature and constants and boundary conditions had a very certain character, the fact that, that had they not had that character there could never have been any life, shouldn't make us demand an explanation uh, in terms of a god, say, unless we had reason to believe that there weren't an infinite number of universes, each of which instantiated one of the infinite number of sets of uh, possible sets of uh, constants, boundary conditions, laws of nature. And that hypothesis being what I call the maximal multiverse hypothesis. Every possible universe is actual. So the maximal multiverse hypothesis, the hypothesis there's an infinite number of universes, each of which instantiates one of the infinite number of possible sets of constants, boundary conditions and laws of nature, that might prima facie seem much more complicated than the hypothesis that there's one universe and one God. But is it? Simplicity considerations operate on types of entity as well as tokens of a type, which is the simplest hypothesis, one that posits an infinite number of infinitely variable universe, or one that posits God and, let's say, this universe alone. Well, the first is simplest on types of entity. There's only one type of thing, universes. 
Second is simplest on tokens of type. There's only two tokens, one each of two types of things. The first God, second the universe. Which is simplest overall? I would suggest that simplicity with regard to type is to be preferred over simplicity with regard to token when decided between hypotheses, and thus that the infinite number of infinitely variable universes hypothesis is actually a simpler hypothesis than the theistic hypothesis. If you think you might disagree with me, consider the following. You come across a room where, as far as the eye can see, monkeys sit at typewriters, typing away. One person with you suggests the hypothesis, there's an infinite number of monkeys sitting at typewriters, Another, there's a finite number of monkeys and one non-monkey thing sitting at typewriters. Which hypothesis would you favour? Surely the former, even though it posits infinitely more tokens than the latter, which posits one more type. Why would you prefer the former, when each equally well explains what you see? Well, it must be simplicity, I suggest. Now, you don't have to agree with me about that, and a lot of people don't, uh, to move on. So let me just say, be that as it may, someone might say that even if simpler the no-god but an infinite number of infinitely variable universes hypothesis still wouldn't explain all that needs to be explained. Why are this sort of infinite number of universes rather than an infinite number of universes all of which have sets of constants, boundary conditions and laws that are not conducive to life or rather than no universes at all? Surely the existence of this infinite set of universes needs some explanation. Perhaps. But the fact that there would be an infinite number of infinitely variable universes wouldn't be a fact uh, that was an instance of order. And so asking for an explanation of it wouldn't be asking for an explanation of order. In other words, that line of questioning would take one outside the field of the design argument and back into the territory of the cosmological argument, which you'll remember I looked at last week and dismissed. So that response to this particular multiverse objection to the fine-tuning argument wouldn't work, I suggest. It wouldn't work, but I think another one would. On the maximal multiverse hypothesis, as every possible universe is actual, so for every moment that passes for a creature in the universe without recalcitrant experience demolishing its inductively based expectations, there are an infinite number of creatures in other universes who, whilst having hitherto shared that creature's happy fate, now find their continuing experience recalcitrant in the most extreme ways. For every emerald that stays green over a moment in the actual universe, there's another universe that was precisely as ours up until that moment in which it goes blue, in another it goes red, in another yellow, in one universe that's exactly like ours up until this moment it turns into a glass of water, in another it turns into a banana, and so on. On the maximal multiverse hypothesis, as every possible universe is actual, so from the fact that, roughly speaking, there's an infinite number of ways in which one might go wrong when one believes something about the future, and only one way, more or less, in which one might go right, there are an infinite number of people, just like us, up until this moment, who are about to go wrong. Seeing a lecture theatre just like this, and their universe is about to go very differently from the way we think of ourselves as knowing our universe will go. <clears throat> On the maximal multiverse hypothesis, then, the evidence that we've collected to date through our experience would do nothing to reduce the probability of our being about to discover that we were one of the ones who was about to go wrong when we suppose that emeralds will stay green and so on. The chances on the maximal multiverse hypothesis of this lectern staying a lectern in the next five seconds are infinitely small. And yet, ah, lo and behold, it's still a lectern. <coughs> so, if life does have the right sort of transuniversal value, as is perhaps hinted at by this astronaut example, though scarcely established beyond reasonable doubt by that or other examples, but if it does then we should believe that the fine-tuning of our universe requires us to hypothesise something extra-universal to explain it. And of the various available hypotheses, we should believe the God hypothesis as the simplest explanatorily adequate hypothesis. 
The right sort of multiverse hypothesis would be simpler in explaining this sort of fine-tuning than the God hypothesis, but it would leave unexplained our continuing inductive success, and so in the end is to be rejected. In conclusion then, I would say that the fine-tuning version of a design argument at least inductively supports the God hypothesis, the level of support turning most fundamentally on how plausible it is that life has the sort of trans-universal value that would be needed for God to have preferred to create a universe with life rather than one without or nothing at all. Personally, I think that this crucial premise is probably true, and thus I conclude that the fine-tuning version of the argument meets our criteria for being a good argument for the existence of God. I wonder if you agree with me. In any case, thank you very much uh, for your attention once more this week. Thank <laughs> you.